Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the human capital strategy for NASA? How did NASA respond to the pandemic and keep its workforce performing? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Jane Dada, Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA. Jane, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. So Jane, would you tell us more about the mission of your office? Uh, how is your office organized? And would you give us a sense of the agency scale of operation that the Office of Chief Human Capital Officer supports within NASA? Sure. Let's start with the mission of my office. Uh, we are a end-to-end um, -end human capital service office. So what that means is we're in the people business. We are here to provide services to the agency in the HR or what we call the human capital arena. And we really think about it in terms of people first, mission always. That's our, our, our tagline. And the reason is that the people make the business happen. But obviously, NASA's mission is incredibly important. And so I see the job of my office being to support the mission through its people. So the scale of operations is fairly large. We support about 18,000 civil servants who are spread across the country over a number of different lines of business, including human space flight and aeronautics research and science missions, some of which have been in the news very recently. It's all an exciting time for our agency. Uh, we also support other segments of the workforce, including uh, on and near site contractor staff, so, and of course we have other segments that, that we indirectly support. You've got your prime contractors and others, but our, our primary focus is really on the 18,000 civil servants. Uh, now, you know, my office used to be decentralized, meaning we had, you know, offices in each of our field center locations and we have consolidated so that I now have direct responsibility for all of HR across the entire agency. So, Jane, what are your specific duties and responsibilities as Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA, and how does this work uh, that you lead support the mission of the agency? So let's start with the duties. There are a lot of layers here, so I'm hoping that I can convey the breadth and depth effectively. First and foremost, um, I run my line of business, so as with any other chief human resource or chief human capital officer. My duties are the people side of the business, so hiring and development and talent mobility, but also there's another sort of broader set of things that I pay attention to, working with agency leadership on administration priorities, COVID, DEIA, move to hybrid work. There's a whole range of things that are not just about providing services in the moment, but are really 
um, helping NASA to navigate things that are going on in the world around us that are impacting us and our missions, and also uh, setting ourselves up for the future. So for instance, you know, it's not just about, can I make this higher with people in my service line? I can't, can I make that higher today so that my mission who needs this skill can get this skill in a timely fashion? But it's also thinking three, four, five, 10 years into the future. How can we set ourselves up to have the right people in place in the future? And so there's a balance of the here and now with the future that I see as being, you know, an incredibly important part of what I bring to the agency. Um, and I would say that everything that we do, be it the service line, be it the, you know, the work that we do with agency leadership and supervisors, all of that contributes directly to the mission. Because in the end, the missions rely on having skilled people available, deployed, um, and, and feeling engaged and empowered to help all of these magnificent missions to happen. Um, the last piece that I would add, uh, which I think is also important, is I'm I'm not just a Chico at NASA. I'm also a Chico in the federal government. So what that means is I feel a response. Part of my responsibility is to stay engaged with my counterparts in other agencies, with OPM, with OMB, and other parts of the federal government, uh, to both learn from and share with them kind of what we need, what's working, um, how things are going. And, and, and even broader than that, paying attention to what's happening in industry around us. I think it is a mistake to use only the federal government as a benchmark for the work that we do. We need to be always paying attention to what's, what's happening in industry uh, and what what some of the innovations are that we might be able to take advantage of and also sharing out as a public servant. That's something that I think of as incredibly important uh, to share out uh, our expertise, what we've found with others. Jane, regarding your responsibilities and duties, what are the top, say, three challenges you face in your position and how have you sought to address those challenges? There are a lot of challenges, but here are some that are top of mind for me. Well, I'm going to start with, uh, with the internal human capital uh, challenges. We have a lot to do <laughs> with a relatively small group of people. Uh, we are on a transformation path, and part of that path is actually figuring out how we get to be more effective and efficient. In particular, we're paying attention to things like automation and improving our HCIT, our human capital information technology footprint. That will help us today, but it will actually set us up for the future in a way that we wouldn't be able to achieve if we only relied on the footprint that we have today. So we have a plan in, in works looking at that line of business. Um, I think that uh, an opportunity that I've been given um, is to have a voice in the biggest workforce challenges at the agency level. I know we're going to be talking about COVID in a little while, but the response to COVID remains a challenge for everyone in the world and in the country and certainly in our agency. So an example of that is, you know, we're very worried about what we hear about workload 
and employee burnout. I think that caring for the health and welfare of our employees is an ever more important thing for us to pay attention to. And I say that not just as a people leader, but also as a member of, a, of the senior leadership team. I think this is a leadership challenge that goes well beyond human capital, but about which I have a particular investment because I understand the value of paying attention to people and their engagement and their wellness. Um, so it's both an opportunity and a challenge right now. I would say too that as with most organizations, NASA is not standing still. There's a lot of wonderful stuff happening at the agency. For instance, the, the commercial partnerships on the human spaceflight side and, and what we are seeing happening in the world around us. And so, um, you know, helping to reshape the workforce skills to, to, to acknowledge some of those shifts is an example of shaping the agency for the future, which is an opportunity and a challenge. Uh, another example of thinking of the future and figuring out how to help us get there, which is a top challenge, is the future of work and, and hybrid work, which is not easy for anybody. We ha nobody has the perfect solution set for this. But I feel I have some influence leadership uh, responsibilities in helping the agency migrate from where it is now and the habits that we've always had, leveraging what we've learned over the last couple of years and then moving into the future that is actually the best of the pre-pandemic and the pandemic experience. Wonderful points. You know, Jane, I was wondering, what has surprised you most since taking over your leadership role at NASA? Well, I would say that when you're not sitting in the Chico seat, you look at things and you say, well, that, that should be fairly easy to do. And then you sit in the seat and you realize what you see is in fact where you sit. And sitting in this chair, I see the overall system with a lens that I perhaps didn't have before. And there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of complexities and layers that I need to attend to. So it doesn't change that my job as the Chico, among other things, is to set direction for my office and to figure out how we need, what we need to do to improve ourselves. But what surprised me a little was the degree to which I needed to factor in a whole range of things, which I might have known about, but not really perfectly understood. So really the coalition building is an example of that. You know, we are a highly distributed agency. We have missions, we have centers, we have other functions. There are a lot of players doing a lot of different things and the connecting the dots is so important and also takes time and effort and brings up sort of things that, uh, that you wouldn't have guessed at necessarily unless you sat in the seat I sit in. So uh, another thing that I've noticed is really change is fine, but change alone is, doesn't capture what you're really doing. It's the process of bringing people along with you that I think really differentiates my life now from what I paid attention to before. And that bringing along is, it's my staff, it's, it's my peers in other functions, it's 
is my stakeholders. It's the leadership of the agency. So it's really critical to bring people along. And that takes time and effort. It's really well worth it, but it requires an immense amount of patience and sort of an eye on the prize. Interesting. So, you know, a great transition as well to the idea of leadership. Given your experiences and your expertise, Jane, what are the characteristics of an effective leader and what leadership principles guide your efforts and how you lead? My leadership principles include things like, okay, set a direction. You got to get clear. I mean, if you if people don't know where you're going, then that isn't leadership. And as part of that, it's really about the why. Why? Why are we transforming human capital right now? We've been through transformation over some years um, up in the lead up to today. Why is this still continuing? Why is that important? So when I say about set a direction, it's a direction and not a plan. So it's not the, I'm giving you a hundred point plan, ready, steady, go. That's not what I mean. It really is describing a future, what it is and what it generally looks like and why it's important. And then I think leadership is about having a strong team. I mean, really, I've seen organizations that have struggled, and a lot of times the struggle is because the team itself isn't strong. Um, I have, I am blessed with just one of the most talented teams that you could ever, ever hope to have. And because of that, I can, I can delegate. I've, in, in a lot of other roles in my career, I was the doer. I was doing the doing. And I have had to let go of that some as a Chico. I'm not, I'm not the one that's drafting the thing and, and creating the project plan, though my instincts are to do that. And I think there are many leaders who still want to. My job instead is to let the team come up with it and then to respond and adjust from there. So in that, I see myself as more of a, of a facilitator as kind of an overseer and facilitator. I'm trying to get obstacles out of people's way to the degree that I can. I have to be connected to people enough to know what's going on so that I can actually help them and help us. So I don't mean to imply that I am disconnected and floating somewhere in the ether above it all. Indeed, I spend a lot of my time with my team really having a good sense of what's going on but my job is really very different. And the other and equally, maybe more important part of being a leader is that I care. I really care. And the care translates into, you know, assume good intent, trust your people, be flexible, support them when they have needs and let them innovate. How did NASA respond to the pandemic and keep its workforce performing? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. 
The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jane Dada, Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA. NASA has had some successes during the past two years, even during this pandemic. Um, what has been your experience, Jane, around this uh, particular event? And, and how did NASA respond to the pandemic and keep its workforce performing? I would say that I'm really proud of what NASA did. What we did was when we realized in early 2020 that this was not going to go away, it was going to potentially turn into a pandemic and we needed, this was serious business, is that we really brought the leadership together, team together from the highest levels of the agency. So we, we quickly assembled a team and we, we also said our number one priority is, to, is the health and safety of our workforce. And we adhered to that. So in March of 2020, we just sort of in a very short period of time, I'm talking like the length of a pay period, we said, everybody go home, right? We just, we cannot, we cannot assure your health and safety on site, go. And so we started there and then we ended up building over the course of months, sort of the frameworks, the structure that we needed to, to assess what work was going to be going on, on on site, to figure out how we would determine how virulent the, the COVID was in the localities where we had facilities, how decisions would be made, and then, of course, communications. So, so we really went from zero to 100 in a short period of time, and we threw our most senior leadership at this because we knew how important it was, both for the mission and for our people. From my part, I ended up paying a lot of attention to the supervisor cadre. And the reason that I did that is because I always say that supervisors is the layer of our organization where the work and the workforce come together. And so they're in the best position to know what's what at any moment in time and to really help in the caretaking of the workforce. So we set up uh, a, a supervisor series uh, for, for the supervisors where we brought a whole bunch of different topics over the course of time. We did it more frequently than monthly, but we are now in a monthly rhythm and have been for this going on two years now. One of the interesting learnings from that series is that the benefit that the supervisors get, and then by the way, we have really, really amazing attendance at these sessions. So clearly there's a need that this is helping at least in part to fulfill, um, but they actually like to hear from each other. So it was in some ways a, a, a togetherness, a shared, uh, a shared response to a crisis. Uh, and you know how it is when you're in what you call a crisis, you want to have other people around you who understand what that feels like and looks like so that you can feel a sense of belonging and that there's a shared experience and that you're helping each other. And so the supervisor cadre was, it was, was something that we started and that we will continue 
uh, into the future uh, because we feel like there's a lot they can learn from each other, even when we're not in a crisis. And uh, so we also, uh, and I don't want to discount the degree to which we as an agency really focused on communications at all levels. And I want to give like the field center leadership, they did the lion's share of that. And we supplemented at the agency level because we knew how important having consistency of message was. And so um, I think if you put all of that together, it was an amazing uh, display of value for the workforce and the mission, both, right? We need to protect the mission and know what's most critical and keep that going. And at the same time, we want to ensure the health and safety of our workforce. That's terrific. You know, I was uh, my follow-on question is uh, really about telework. And one of the things that really <laughs> made folks and agencies rather nimble is telework has been long encouraged by NASA, as I understand it, because NASA was an early adopter of virtual collaboration tools. The agency was able to transition and maintain operational continuity through and continues to through the pandemic. Uh, can you tell us more about NASA's workplace response vis-a-vis -vis the COVID pandemic? And what are some of the key challenges uh, it had faced? You are quite right that we have been teleworking for a very long time at NASA. We were an early adopter of the idea of telework and we encouraged it. Having said that, I would say we had probably no more than 25% of our workforce that was actively teleworking for some parts of the week. So it was not something that touched everyone at our agency pre-pandemic. The first months of being away from the work site and the disruption of all of the patterns of how we got work done was a little hard. And that was a great example of how the field center support, the agency support, the communications and our supervisor series played into you know, how we responded. So we spent a lot of time trying to uh, get people to understand what the flexibilities were. So for instance, it wasn't just about telework, it was freedom in this time of a pandemic to adjust the hours that you work and let your people work different hours. And then flexibilities would slow down from OPM around excuse leave for dependent care. And we would take great pains to make sure people knew what those things were so that they could use them appropriately and so on and so forth. From a technology point of view, we had a lot of great experience connecting people up through virtual tools. Going all the way back to Hurricane Sandy, I remember we had our uh, a leadership meeting across the agency whilst the hurricane was raging around us. So it goes back that far and farther. But I think that, it, it, I don't know if it was serendipity or good planning on behalf of my OCIO colleagues, but we were ready with new, more robust platforms right at the time that, that COVID hit. So part of what we did was we really encouraged people to migrate to the new platforms. So adoption of the platforms that had not just video, but also the SharePoint and text and all the whole surround sound, which makes communicating that much easier. That was a big focus uh, in the early months. So when we got together with the supervisors and said, okay, week one, your job is to call each of your employees and find out where they are, how they are, how they are doing, are they worried, are they stressed, 
make sure you give them support, some basic stuff. And the way to do that was really through these platforms. I mean, really, I think talking to people via video is 100,000% better than just calling them up on the phone, although phone is fine in some cases. So we really leveraged the, the platforms that we luckily had available at that time to be able to encourage people to move their practices onto those platforms. That helped enormously. I would also say, Platforms in general, I think, have improved significantly in the last couple of years. I mean, the marketplace responded and they said, wow, with so many people going virtual, maybe for, very, for a very long time, we need to really attend to how this feels on a day-to-day -day basis. And so um, I think we really sped up the adoption. Now we are, you know, super users of, of platforms and we have used, you know, we're doing things like, you know, virtual meetings with breakout rooms and, and virtual whiteboards. And, you know, we're, we're getting more sophisticated over time with what's available to us. But I think that um, it really helped us really move into the future of work because it was a shock to the system. And there really weren't good alternatives other than turning to those kinds of platforms and tools and practices. So, um, Jane, as a follow-up, how will NASA be working when the pandemic, hopefully soon, is behind us? Well, we've declared, as have most agencies, that we will be moving into what we call the hybrid environment. And uh, we're striving to take the best of the experience pre-pandemic, the best of what we've learned during the pandemic, and apply it. I don't want to signal that we've got it all figured out because we haven't. I think there is a desire to reconnect with people in person. And so I think that what we will find over time when the constraints related to being together either on site at our work sites or frankly anywhere else, when they lift some and so people have more of a choice I think it will be more of a mixture of some on-site, some remote work, and some more active telework is what I expect. But I have also uh, alerted leadership to the fact that this is an ever-evolving situation. I don't mean in a pandemic sense. What I mean is that what we do in the year following Restrict, lifting of restrictions might give us some idea of how we want to operate for the future, but we won't be all the way there yet. And as because of that, we've actually declared that there's an, what we're calling an experimental phase. We didn't want to fall into the trap of uh, trying to decide too early what we would invest in or divest ourselves of, either from a facilities, you know, office space, or from an IT perspective, but instead give ourselves some breathing room once the, some of the restrictions or a sufficient number of the restrictions have lifted that we that enough people have choice that you can start seeing how they behave and what choices they actually make. And so we believe that that experimental phase will um, last for some good part of 2022 given where we are now with COVID, I think it's been delayed a little. So we're not rushing to judge what our new work patterns are too soon. 
But we know that it won't look like 2019 or 2018. And we know that it won't look like March of 2020. And what we, what we aspire to do is to, as I say, take the best of what we've learned. But I think in that, our goal is to balance you know, what we need to get the work done, because that comes first um, in terms of, you know, if I'm, I'm, if I'm choosing between an in-person meeting or a, or a telework uh, meeting, what are the things that we need to attend to that are most important to do in person and do those in person and be willing to. So there's that sort of piece of the decision-making. But what's really newer is giving employees a bit more freedom and choice, how they work, when they work, um, you know, how work gets done. And that's the piece that I think we are, you know, really attending to in this experimental phase to see if we can make it work for us and actually come out the other end and say, hey, you know what? I'm better able to balance my personal needs with my kids or my, you know, elderly parents or whatever the case might be in this new world than I was back in 2019. And uh, I just don't think that we're there yet. So I suspect that we that any given employee will try a few things before landing on the patterns that seem to make the most sense. Same goes with projects and missions at NASA and what really needs to be done where and when. Um, so it's going to be, it will all we will always be learning, but this first phase, there's I think we're we're going to be focused on, you know, the adjustment period and not assuming that we know at the outset what it needs to look like. Excellent insight. You know, Jane, despite all the hardships, how has the pandemic allowed NASA to really think about how technology can foster greater connection across the agency? And to some extent, I was wondering, how is this an opportunity or this opportunity, a silver lining of this pandemic? I think I uh, answered this a little bit in the question that we just had earlier uh, around giving employees um, a a sense of connection, whether they're there or not. So, but in addition to that, I, as a human capital professional, see a lot of promise in this hybrid world that gets at issues of strategic importance. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I think the degree to which we can get access to the talent wherever that talent is and wants to live and work will give us more choice in the future than perhaps we might have had in the past. So there's an access to talent piece, which many agencies are talking about today. You know, if I need to hire someone who wants to live and work in North Dakota, that seems like a possibility in today's world that wouldn't have seemed possible in, in years gone by. We have had a small number of people who've moved to remote locations, but it's a small number. And typically people who have a history with NASA and had been at a field center location um, up to that point. Um, so I think there's a lot of promise there, but actually more importantly to me, I think we need to uh, focus on internal development and mobility. And I think the hybrid world, the virtual world allows the development opportunities and growth career growth opportunities, as well as and better ways to plug people into the work from a deployment point of view that they, that where the, the fit is, is there. 
Uh, I think there are lots of options for us that we wouldn't have had before. So for instance, you know, virtual platforms tend to favor inclusion. So it's just as easy in many cases to have 500 people as it is 50. I don't want to overstate that because of course you've got you know, different designs and how you do meetings and development, developmental uh, sessions when you are dealing with larger versus smaller numbers, but you're not flying people around. And so from a, an efficiency of time and a cost perspective, it's easier for people to actually reach out and get virtual opportunities and, and fit that into a work week. <laughs> uh, so, so that's one example. We are focused on things like, you know, rotations and what we call detail assignments, which are basically we loan people out from a home organization to another organization to have an experience doing real hands-on work at with another organization that allows for an enormous amount of both vertical and horizontal growth. And I, what I mean is you could do an assignment which gives you an adjacent skill that doesn't necessarily, I'm not talking about promotions, I'm really just talking about assignments that stretch people in a lot of different ways. Uh, so, um, you know, if you have to up sticks and move or go on extended uh, travel to a location, it can be both expensive, but more importantly, disruptive. So now you've opened up opportunities for people to look outside of their home field centers and organizations for opportunities that make sense. And similarly, if you're a supervisor who needs a skill, you aren't limited to the people who are local. So these are just some examples of ways in which I think we can really leverage the virtual world to the advantage of everyone. Yeah, and are there any challenges associated with these opportunities that you might want to elaborate on? Sure. I would say that a goal of internal mobility and development is the right thing to do, for example, uh, you know, the things that I talked about in the last question, but it also creates churn. And it also challenges the stability that I think is a hallmark of what we rely on for continuity and sticking to schedules and timelines. So given that we might have a greater volume of activity to help develop people, I think it could create churn and that will stretch our supervisors. Uh, I also think that uh, just a supervisor cadre is, um, has had to work extra hard for all the reasons that I've mentioned so far, but being in touch with the distributed workforce and really helping them think about things like career growth and training opportunities that might be more numerous than they would have been before, I think is just, um, it just means that there's a little bit more pressure in the system to balance these employees' needs with what is already a, a, a fairly uh, challenging workload <laughs> on people's plates. Well, Jane, I was wondering, what is being done to ensure your agency leverages what is what is learned during this pandemic to help it be more efficient and effective, even as it returns to sort of what we were calling a normal operation? So we, like we did with COVID, we actually are, are considering the, what we call the future of work, um, an effort which requires agency leadership attention. So that's one way in which we are underscoring its importance and also ensuring that we know what's going on and that we are making adjustments as we go. So we have actually 
developed sort of what we call future work plans, but these are as far out as we can see, right, by location. So this is an area where we want to be really responsive to the local needs and not overdo any one thing, not go too fast in a transition such that the, in the local area, it's not possible to adapt. So I guess what I would say is, I think that we are ambitious for the longer run and we are being realistic as we step forward into this environment. And we are doing that by keeping our leadership managers and supervisors sort of connected to this effort so that we are learning from each other and that we are making adjustments to the overall strategy. We've published a set of philosophies and priorities for this that have been endorsed by all of the organizations as well as leadership. So that's a good starting point. It's kind of the analog of what I was talking about for myself with my function, which is you set that direction. I think we've set a direction and now we're doing the kneading of the dough, if you will, to figure out how we can move in that direction in a way that is not so disruptive that it actually creates kind of chaos around us. What is the human capital strategy for NASA? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jane Dada, Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA. You know, Jane, you mentioned the direction of strategy I think you're alluding to. And, and if I could, since you just brought it up, I'd like to jump to that. Would you outline the human capital strategy for NASA? And, and more importantly, what are your key priorities for realizing this vision? I have a lot of priorities. <laughs> so... Um, I think that um, my, my strategy is to fulfill the role that I outlined, which is I have to, I'm trans my strategy is to transform our human capital services so that we can really deliver value to our stakeholders at all levels and the mission through them. I need to be a voice for all things people at the agency and I think top priorities within that category include you know moving the COVID response from what it's been to what it will morph into as we 
go through 2022 and maybe it isn't a pandemic, but it, it's an endemic. And so there's a there's perhaps a longer transition period than ever anyone would ever have thought. But that's an important piece. Future of work and hybrid is really important. Diversity and all of the efforts of the administration on diversity is important. Workforce planning and really figuring out how we get everyone connected on the reshaping of workforce and how it is that we're gonna be moving from now into the future, especially in the human space-like world. Those are all parts of my human capital strategy. So, and how am I doing that? Well, it's it's sort of what I've described. Um, I know I, I, I talked about being in touch with my people and my staff so I knew what was going on. Equally true, I spend a lot of my time in a week talking to my peers, talking to um, my stakeholders, customers out there, um, at mostly at the senior levels. Um, but um, I, you know, I think it's important that we be transparent about what we're doing and that we're in there as a voice emphasizing what's important about some of these other initiatives. We are also, and I haven't talked about this so far, but we really are paying attention to the data and analytics that we need to underscore what we need to understand about current state to push us towards the future. So I think that you know, cleaning data. We, we've been a highly decentralized um, organization. We are also been decentralized with data. So it's a fairly large effort to figure out how it is that we can have a data strategy and make data available and, and where practicable put data about our people in the hands of our supervisors and managers so that they can get the insights themselves. So there's a lot wrapped up in that, but I wanted to give you a sense of the breadth of what I pay attention to. That's very helpful. You know, I was wondering, uh, Jane, about your efforts to transform NASA's HR services across the agency. And maybe you could allude for us and outline for us the, the difference between a traditional HR customer model and NASA's HR business partner model, which I believe uh, as I understand it, the human capital workforce was consolidated into one organization in October 2018. Maybe you can elaborate. So I, I think I mentioned earlier that in the past, we had an HR office at every field center location. And then we had kind of a policy program office at the headquarters, which is the organization that I've been aligned to since I've been at NASA. And about three, four years ago, we consolidated so that the human capital organization is one versus a sort of a loosely connected grouping of different HR organizations. So with that came the desire to really modernize and improve the efficiency and the effectiveness. So part of that magic was in the HRBP model, the HR business partner model that you referenced. And so what, what we, the traditional um, approach to HR services is, especially at NASA, is that they were very people provided and still are today, but we're shifting that. So what I mean by that is if a customer has a question, they go to a person. And that has been very successful in the past. Uh, we, it's, it's part of our culture of, of 
interconnection networks, being very customer driven. Our people really want to understand our customers. We don't want to to be responsive through any way other than in really connecting directly person to person in the needs of our customers. The challenge with that model is that it's really hard to get any kind of efficiency in it. First off, because you know every solution could be a you know a customized solution, <laughs> and because there there's not a lot of interoperability from one field center's operations in an HR office to another. So what we've realized is that we need to really move from an HR business partner answers any question to how can we focus our HR business partners, which is really what the original design was supposed to be. And, and we are doing that today. We are actually providing consulting services through the HRBP model today. But what we're trying to do is to really clean up some of the other things that they do so that they we can really focus our HR business partners on the things that bring the most value to our customers that must be provided by people. So the model of an HRBP is really about understanding overall and ticklish issues that don't have straightforward answers. So what's the health of my organization? And where are there issues and where do I need work development support? And what about succession planning and how do the needs, the mission needs line up to this talent that I've got in this organization? We do all of those things today, but really it's a focus on that through the HRPPs, which differentiates it from the a, a more traditional model of do everything that comes your way. And instead, what we're trying to do is to take those things that are more process focused, more information sharing focused, and find different ways to deliver those services that actually get at some of the standardization and efficiency that I think we, that we need in order uh, to be able to really meet our, our the full set of our customers' needs. So Jane, what are some of the foundational challenges associated with the federal hiring process that impacts NASA? And, and to what extent is NASA making changes and working towards a new modern workforce system that emphasizes agility acquires and deploys top talent rapidly, and most importantly, aligns compensation with performance? So a foundational challenge of the federal hiring process is that it is complex. There are a lot of different hiring authorities, even for an agency such as NASA that fits that sits squarely in Title V. Uh, across the government, it's even more complicated. So understanding not only what all those authorities are, but how to use them well. And then uh, if you add into that all of the practices that you could employ uh, in a staffing process for when to announce, whether to announce, it's just a challenging area and it requires a knowledge. It just does. And so one of the things that we've been doing is, is when we were lucky to have direct hire authority for a period of time for a number of occupations and grades. And so we are finding that that is incredibly helpful. We are still improving our hiring process. And I don't want to say that we're all the way there yet. Uh, we have more to go. So for instance, when we 
uh, put out announcements, either competitive announcements, but, but really this is true of direct hire announcements and you get a thousand applicants, figuring out how it is that you can really sort through that applicant set to get to the talent that you need to fill any specific uh, job requirement takes some time from people or you end up wanting to have some technology to help you with that sorting process. And we're, we're not all the way there yet with technology. So there's a lot, there are a lot of things in our plate to actually be able to leverage even the hiring authorities and direct hire authorities that we have now. In addition to that, uh, we are trying to balance uh, the use of permanent employments at uh, at NASA with some that are not permanent, i.e. term limited, uh, in order to give the workforce overall some more flexibility for the future. And so that means that at the front end, as you're thinking about what the right appointing authority is and whether it's term or perm or how you get there and do you announce or do you, you know, there's just a lot wrapped up in how do I do this well and efficiently? So it is one of my very top priorities for 22 to, to continue to get better in this area. From an employer of choice point of view and attracting, I think we will continue to make the point through our recruiting efforts, which we've got some really innovative recruiting efforts that really are taking us to a, a new place where we're not relying on just job fairs in person, although we have some of those too, but really on the virtual world, which is where most of the rest of the world has gone and been for a while. Reflecting on your leadership at NASA, would you tell us how you continue to keep your employees focused and motivated in the face of dramatic, sometimes painful changes? And how do you balance the aspirational with the grounded reality? It's hard, and if I were just to respond by describing how I think about it for my human capital workforce, but whatever I say for me and my people could be extended to the NASA workforce or anyone else, I think. It's really important for me with my people to maintain healthy optimism for the future. I know that sounds a little Pollyanna perhaps, but I do actually believe that the future is bright and that within the challenges that we face today and every day, there is always a reason to get up in the morning and do what we do. I think we're lucky at NASA that every NASA employee is at the agency because they really feel committed to the mission. So it's a little easier for me to say those things and have them resonate than it might be somewhere else outside of NASA. But I think really paying attention to where are they and reminding them that the struggles that they have in any given day don't have to last forever. And that within that, there are great things that happen every day. So when I have my all hands meetings or when I have sort of small group meetings with with folks in, on my staff, there is always something good going on. <laughs> and I have to remember to share that just as much as we share. We, we like admiring problems at NASA. So we could spend a lot of time dwelling on the problems that we face. But within that, there's so much innovation. There's so much progress that we continue to make that that's actually how we balance the aspirational with the reality. There are those things that happen where you say, see, that's what it looks like when we make progress. And also 
that, that every employee has a part in it. I think if, if it's done to them, it feels bad. When they have a part in it and a voice in it, it somehow feels more like a collective journey. And that's what I aspire to set for my people uh, in human capital. And I think that's true of the leadership with regard to the rest of the NASA workforce also. Well, it's obvious because um, NASA always ranks very high in the Partnership for Public Service Best Places to Work survey. And I was wondering, would you tell us more about your success in this area and what has been done to secure it, to make it happen, and the lessons you want to share with some colleagues through you know, the cross-agency, interagency efforts at the Chico Council? What can you tell us more about this? Sure. We are very proud, but also very grateful that we have been the best place to work in the federal government for large agencies for a number of years. We also don't want to rest on our laurels. It's very important that we realize that attending to our people and and the health of our agency is is an ongoing uh, is ongoing work for us. I would say that, that the differentiators for us start with the mission. As I was saying a little while ago, we are passionate about our mission. And in public service, I think in general, I think people go to public service because there's something about how you're spending every day on behalf of the nation and the public that just fundamentally matters more than say getting a really big paycheck <laughs> since we aren't really able to compete on salary this is why you come into public service and in particular why you come to nasa so that gives us a good running start at this i also think that the quality of the leadership starting with the administrator and going to the levels of leadership that all the way down through the supervisors to the employees the fact that we actively demonstrate that people matter is an important part of, of getting to the results that we've seen. Connecting people with each other is another thing. You know, we, we celebrate our missions. You know, there are watch parties, launch watch parties, and a lot of effort to really feel that not only are we proud of missions when they happen. For instance, the James Webb Space Telescope that launched and is now in the process of readying itself. That was a couple decades in the making and it is one of the most exciting things that I, I think I have ever seen. So, uh, you know, passion for the mission, but that the mission doesn't happen without the people. <laughs> and so I think it's a combination of all of what I've talked about. Uh, and I also would point to the role of the supervisor. We do very well in the employee engagement, uh, the, the subsection on supervisors. And it's really clear that people in the main really trust and believe in their supervisors and feel that their supervisors have their backs. I think that has gotten even more, uh, even stronger over this COVID period. They really rely on their supervisors to help them do the balancing and the surviving of the hard things and the connecting to the good things. So I would say that really the engagement index and the global satisfaction index, which are ones that we really pay a lot of attention to from the survey itself, do play to our strength. It doesn't mean that we can assume that good stuff will happen. We need to pay attention to it. And it starts at the top. Jane, my last question. 
What advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service? Well, as I said at the outset, I have had experience, career experiences outside of the federal government or any kind of public service. And I didn't really plan to come into public service, but I ended up coming here through a bunch of other moves. And I am so glad that I did. I think a public service career is meaningful in ways that are both wide and deep. Um, I think there are always things about a workplace that are challenging, the bureaucracy, some of the constraints we have to accept in how things work. And yet in the end, we are spending our time doing good for the world. And if I look back on my career and I can feel good that I've spent some of my time at least trying to do good for the world, then that matters more than did I have a great title? Did I earn a lot of money? That's what matters. So for anyone considering a career in public service, I think you need to care about the mission and, and, and care about at a, at a more profound level about what really contributing to the nation and to that particular workplace would mean for you personally. It's very personal. I would also um, say that I think in public service, we do tend to value the person. And so we protect holidays and we protect leave and we value work-life balance. And that in the mix of all the things that you can get in a work experience, that is an important thing to pay attention to at all stages of your life. Uh, it might be uh, more important in certain stages of your life than in others, but it's something that you can usually get through public service that will also help to keep you healthy uh, in the balancing of all the things that make up a life. Well, Jane, I want to thank you for joining me today. Uh, I've taken enough of your time, but I want to thank you for joining me today. And more importantly, Jane, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. My pleasure. I feel grateful. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Jane Dada, Chief Human Capital Officer at NASA. Be sure to join me next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions.
We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition. Pay benefits in retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.